These events took place on June 23rd, 2016, and I wrote the story over the next two years on, on an iPhone 4. And, uh, yeah, here it is. My college English professor, before we start, so I'm going to butcher a lot of stuff, and it's not going to be perfect. This isn't an audio book production, so please bear with me with all the mistakes and stutters. My college English professor told me to never write using attractions, limit the use of that, exclude writing in first person, and to avoid expletives like the plague. Fuck that. I can't. At the hand of these parameters, throughout the entirety of concocting this digital document of ones and zeros of fun and heroes, my creativity has been gunned and spear-gored. Beauty violated like a nun raped by Igor. Untapped potential ashed like Rome by Nero. Translation. Adhering to the club rules of the English language has really curb-stomped any novelty my monkey brain constructed. So I abandoned them as quickly and permanently as the deadbeat dads in the day before genetic days before genetic testing. It was a simpler time. Creative entertainment is the war to be won, and I will sacrifice my platoon of punctuation anarchists by casting them into battle against the old guard grammar Nazis. Creativity will not be stifled, even if the price I pay is to notify mothers of fatalities via grammatically horrendous letters. Why does grammar matter so much? It's already a feat in its own that we've eluded natural selection this long let alone manage to use the ten weird little knuckle-jointed hand penises we call fingers to slap the keys of a laptop, itself a synthetic brain extension that will ultimately replace us. Kind of like training the very same fuckhead who's taking your job, except instead of another genetic snowflake flipping your burgers in return for cotton-based consumer coupons issued by the righteous and morally infallible saints at the Federal Reserve, it'll be exterminators running on sentient NetSky software, that will utilize suborbital ballistic death delivery systems to bleach humanity with the same apathy, indifference, and slight annoyance one feels when using cupped hands, cupped hands of lead-based tap water to wash a strand of hair down a bathroom sink. The above paragraph actually served as two filters, one announced and one embedded. The grammar Nazis were informed that I don't support homogenizing stories through literary eugenics nor do I support raping original content of its novelty with the same totality and scalding hatred of F4 Phantom Napalm sorties across picturesque rice paddy communities of the 1970s Vietnam. If you haven't caught on by now, the not-so-secret filter used to marijuana out squares is my morbid and red-flag-raising sense of tumor. Third filter, fuck you. If you're still down to pound, let the story begin. My name is Cliff. I ate a bunch of psychedelic drugs, and here's my story. I had no idea that the gifts from God were arriving today. Shipping said 3 to 28 business days. It arrived at 9 a.m. on the third day. These fuckers mean business, which makes sense because they're a business. The good sit under the door from a mailman who was unwittingly carrying paper and power capable of inducing a momentous ride of magic and madness so enlightening, ethereal, and earth-shattering that no mortal mind could rationally ride out. I was pleasantly surprised with the early arrival to say the least. However, I like to plan my journeys through spirit and space ahead of time. Yet here I am, holding Buddha's nectar, and I'm supposed to what? Just go about my day, like a dog by a stake with his when his master isn't looking? Desire pulls deeply in my chest and I feel a temptation burning, a literal physical yearning, under my sternum. No, no, no. I must do this properly, I tell myself, just as I prepared for previous rituals, with sincerity, love, and a true desire to get somewhere and learn something. Where and what, I don't know. And I don't mean that in the romantic sense of the young man and his guitar hitting the road because his heart's telling him destiny is calling and you'll see my name in lights one day, Paul. I promise. No, I've found psychedelic adventures bringing packets of peace to his packaged in peculiar patterns. Thus, I don't know what's going to happen, but I can tell you that the Beatles knew what was up with Lucy and the atmosphere of carbon. But these journeys are not for leisure. I am to return with positive knowledge for myself and others. As Duncan Trussell said, these chemicals are so powerful it could turn the captain of a preppy suburban high school cheerleading squad into a goth in a single evening. I am always open to such change, no matter how absurd from my current point of view, because it comes from within and cannot be unlearned. These synthetic treasures were not to be wasted under any circumstance. And then the curious little kid, alright, the selfish, self-pitying addict in me groans with impatience, and the previous paragraphs means nothing. So like every battle with ourselves, I begin to try and justify my immediate wants while rationalizing the abandonment of prior obligations. Notice how I said battle with ourselves. I have to pull you down with me because misery loves come fucking over others. To my surprise, after reviewing the previous 12 hours, I actually can justify this. I went to bed at 8pm without sleep aid, I woke up at 4 without a stimulant, worked out cardio and weights, meditated in the sauna, and took a cold shower. That's what I try to do on a day-to-day -day basis, but rarely get them all. Yet today, I did. My last meal was at 7pm the night prior, and I was completely vegetarian. 
I hadn't drank alcohol in over a month. I had the place to myself, a clear mind, and a healthy, refreshed body. This was the perfect time and place to untie the knots. My girlfriend was going to be gone all day. My apartment was clean. I had no prior engagements. 9 to 5 a.m. With a Grinch-like curling, shooting smile, I slid open the cardboard package and giddily gazed upon the fruits of Eden in front of me. With excitement, I cut one tab off of one strip, 150 micrograms of ALLAD. With more reverence than receiving the Eucharist at my first communion, I closed my eyes, placed the tiny trinket on my tongue with tweezers, and acknowledged the beginning of my ride. I did some more meditation, turned off my phone and laptop, lowered the temperature, and sat in front of the TV. I flipped on GTA 5. Definitely not to massacre people this time, but rather to drive around and hug the turns, fly helicopters over beautiful mountain scenery, and try to thread the needle by flying the fighter jet 400 miles per hour between skyscrapers, below a bridge, above the road, and to the side of a city bus, all at once. It never worked, but it's fun to imagine it did. Fuck you. 9.30am. 30 minutes passes by and nothing happens. As Mitch Hedberg said regarding shitty absinthe, I was trying to force the trip. Staring at walls, squinting at tapestries, examining the sun's glitter on leaves. Any visual cue that the engines were lit. Nope. Maybe maybe mental abnormalities. I stare at my hands and contemplate that I'm just an animal with awareness. I glance at the sun and focus on the fact that I've spent my life on a green uh, that I've spent my entire life on a green, DNA infested, wet piece of iron silicate dust floating in infinity. And I ponder the goofiness of the idea that anything exists at all. None of it seems weirder than normal. Alright, alright. Chill out. 10 a.m. Now I'm in denial. Maybe there's still food in my stomach. Despite graduating with a biology degree and being accepted to both medical school and pharmacy school, I don't say that to brag, by the way. I say it to set up self-deprecation. So carry your Clyde sales and unroll those eyes. Despite all this, I conjure up some pseudoscience bullshit. Maybe the tab is stuck on my stomach wall and needs to be washed off so it can be absorbed. I drank a full 32-ounce Gatorade, despite the fact I let the tab sit on my tongue for 30 minutes, followed by chewing it and tossing it around for another 30, before swallowing it. 10.30 a.m. What a fucking surprise. The water does nothing. Shooting down, scientific logic the, lo, shooting down scientific logic harder than the church slammed Galileo, and maybe Francis Gary Powers shot down in the U2, I conjure up some more Herbalife-level horseshit. Maybe the enzymes needed to break it down don't have the proper constituent parts. The idea is technically plausible in that, yes, certain cofactors are needed by enzymes, as proved by biochemistry. But, if I were to be deficient in those, I would have noticed a long, long time ago and, diagnosed with, and been diagnosed with something at childbirth. More likely, I wouldn't have even formed properly in the womb. And to top it off, I take a multivitamin every night anyway. So no, a single fucking strawberry multivitamin gummy isn't going to just do the trick. But I'm desperate. So I take the chewy sensation that's sweeping the nation in hopes it'll help with the drug's biochemical digestion, question, quenching, and exfoliation. This opportunity comes once in a lifetime. You better lose your ego. 10.45 a.m. Nothing. What a surprise. And even if it was plausible, why the fuck would I be looking for results in 15 minutes? Because I'm swinging for the fences like Barry Bonds on polar bear hormones. And continue to swing, I will. Maybe it's like the Wolf of Wall Street when Jordan and Donnie take the expired lemon 715 quaaludes. When they don't kick in, they start exercising to rev up their metabolism in hopes of pushing the goodies past the blood-brain barrier and into the receptors that'll then make the good times roll. I start doing push-ups, chin-ups, and sit-ups before concluding that my luck's up and this is all fucked up. 11 a.m. Just like Jordan and Donnie, I'm sorely disappointed. And to top it off, I'm all butthurt because my douchey self-righteous inner monologue silently consoled me. Yeah, but those guys were Wall Street pricks heading into the warm waters of hedonism. Plus, they took it too far and were reckless in their actions. You're trying to become more aware of the chemicals banned by the man, man. Get on your white horse of enlightenment and travel onwards, my dear apostle of awareness. Puke. Disgusted by my ego and snobby thoughts, I realize even more just how badly I need a soul-sobering spiritual sit-down with the universe. I take my second cold shower of the day to wash off my sweat of stupidity. Okay, press pause. Obviously not literally because you can't pause time. Or can you? This is called foreshadowing. I'm going to hint that something later in this story, sometime later in the story, I experienced the possibility of pausing time. Common sense says this is an experience that was made possible by the psychedelic drugs I took, the major theme of this book. But seriously, pause. Whereas earlier, I made a conscious decision to imitate Jordan and Donnie, choosing to exercise. All actions taken beyond this point in my tumultuous tale were of independent origin. Any future similarities to the lemon fiasco went right over my head at the time, 
as did the real-life foreshadowing. When my inner monologue muttered to me, they took it too far and were reckless in their actions, little did I know I was destined to experience a level of irony so powerful that, if possible to be contained and directed, could have been used to level Hiroshima. Weaponized irony. What a time to be alive. Hit play. 11.15 a.m. It's been two hours and 15 minutes. I ponder dosing again, because the product is either weaker than advertised or I've been flat out hoodwinked and given template blotters. What would be the ramifications of taking another hit? If the latter possibility were true, and I was given plain old perforated paper instead of eagle squashing squares, nothing would happen. If the former were true, then I would hit the threshold dose, probably start acting funny, but I wouldn't know why, excuse myself, and kiss this guy. I retrieved the package, which I had sealed with several bags, thinking I had a cache of literal one-hit wonders. My purchase would last for a long, long time, and thus needed to be airtight and in the dark. Well, fuck that idea. I undo all the protective layers, carefully pull out the second strip of paper with tweezers, slice along the perforated area, and hold up the tab to my eyes. 100 micrograms of 1P LSD. Like using a second match to try and light a fire, I again attempt to ignite my brain by sticking my tongue out, letting the adhesive properties pluck the tab off the tweezers, and then I wipe the tiny tongs on my lip, just in case a microgram or two rubbed off. 11.30 a.m. Hold the phone. I slowly feel the slight nausea I have come to associate with LSD derivatives, namely LSA. Giddy with excitement, I immediately forgive the manufacturer for shitty ALLAD. I've never been so psyched for nausea in my life. What an odd thing happens to the mind would promise spiritual scuba diving to the depths within? Excitement for nauseousness. I guess it's analogous to choking down jet fuel flavored disinfectants if you know the warm, gregarious embrace of alcoholic intoxication jovially awaits you. Yeah, you're not so high and mighty now, are you? Alcohol is a drug, and therefore you're no different than this here dirty hippie. We're all just monkeys who like to leave this world for a little while. The only difference being our compound of choice and destination of consciousness. Drunk, carefree, and socially smitten. Caffeinated, vigilant, and anxious. Baked, contemplative, Alzheimer's. Adderalled out, confidence, the person you wish you could be, and paranoia. Barred out, void, with the skeleton crew running your brain. Or, on some good old-fashioned bath salts, brain thrown in a blender, and singing with Satan as you eat a man's face on the Miami freeway. 11.45 a.m. Nausea has subsided, but no other progress towards the light has been made. When you wake up and see that you have ten minutes left before your alarm goes off, you lay still, trying to fall asleep, all the while thinking, don't think about it, don't look at it, just clear your mind. This was similar. Don't think about failing. It'll work. It has to work. Don't glance at the clock. It has to work. It made you nauseous, so it's definitely the right chemical, and it's definitely active. 12 p.m. Okay, it's been 45 minutes since the 100 micrograms of 1P LSD and 3 hours since the 150 micrograms ALLAD. I'm still not entirely sure what the problem is. Lower dose than advertised or complete robbery? I don't feel the need to tap into the other two, two sealed patches of LSD derivatives, ETHLAD and ALD52, for I have no faith they will be any more active. I again unsteal all the protective layers, but this time retrieve the thumbnail-sized baggie of purple-pink powder, 4-ACO-DMT a chemical that produces an effect almost identical to psilocybin. Or, that's what I read. My lurking on Arrowhead, the Library of Alexandria for Altered States, has led me to conclude that 25 milligrams or so of the purple powder should produce visual and mental aberrations equivalent to about an eighth of decent shrooms. I use my fingernails to open the smallest blade on my Swiss Army knife, established in 1884. Pick one up today. Using the sharpened tip of the knife, I dig deep into the bag, ever so carefully, mindful to not even exhale, scoop up a tiny a tiny little mound that seems to be a tenth of the total power, give or take five milligrams. In addition to not trusting the manufacturer when it comes to the blotters, I now no longer have faith in the vascular system moving in my mouth or the digestive tract on the whole. I hold the blade up to my left nostril, press the right one closed, and sniff like a crossbreed between Scarface and a German Shepherd. Instantly, Heat and sharp acidic pangs ignite my nasal passage, sinuses, area behind my left eye, and the area above my uvula. That ought to do it. 1 p.m. I start posting on Reddit and r slash rc sources, ranting about how disappointed I am with the vendor, Lysergy.com. A waste of money and a broken heart. It has now been one hour since dosing the 25 milligrams of 4-ACO-DMT, one hour and 45 minutes since the 100 micrograms of 1-P-LSD, in four hours since the 150 micrograms of ALLAD, I am so upset. More sad than angry. Actually, not angry at all. Just completely heartbroken that I won't be talking with God today. 
ponder yet again if the chemicals were either diluted or non-existent, and reach the same conclusion as before. Dosing again will do nothing if it's the latter, or introduce me to the girl with the kaleidoscope eyes if it's the former. I unseal the protective layer shielding the cranial candy from light and air. The inverse similarity it has to our atmosphere, a layer of air which is protecting us from the dark vacuum of space, goes right over my head, as this had no air and was in a dark vacuum, keeping it alive. Yin and yang. The universe is sprinkling foreshadowing flakes right onto my forehead for fuck's sake, but I had no foresight to look for what Terence McKenna called, quote, psychedelic temporal backwash, end quote. He said it happens when you embark on a deep psychedelic trip, not just any old trip, but when you go skydiving into your subconscious, the trip causes a temporal backwash. That is, even before you ingest the chemicals, in the minutes, hours, or even days leading up to the trip, you'll notice profound coincidences or beautiful metaphors representing fundamental universal truths being played out by seemingly bland everyday actions and artifacts, like unzipping a plastic bag. It's a retroactive come-out. As I said before, it all flew over my head higher than a CIA satellite over North Korea which are apparently high enough that we can all pretend those aren't concentration camps down there. But how the fuck am I helping out? I'm not. I'm a grown-ass man doing drugs on a Thursday morning, but you can bet your pretty little ass I'll keep being edgy and casting judgments from my high horse. Anywho. Not seeing the similarities between Jordan, Donnie, and myself, I decide to dose up because there's no risk in my book. Finally trip, or eat harmless paper. It wasn't that I contemplated the third possibility but ultimately rejected it. No. I didn't even acknowledge the prospect that there was just a massively delayed time release. Weaponized irony. The fact that so many things were flying so fucking high over my head that day gives credence to McKenna's backwash hypothesis. Instead of blatant logic flying over my head, I was simply already diving down deep into the hypersonic waters of psychedelia, while rational thought floated along the surface. Cars aren't way up in the sky, coal miners just work deep below the surface. Or maybe I'm just poetically trying to explain away my stupidity of that day. 1 p.m. Still, with surgical precision, I use the knife to slide under the minuscule, to slide under it, and pinch a minuscule bit of powder in the bag and remove a tiny amount for the second time that day. Clearly, insufflation didn't work, so I choose to approach from a different angle, and I put the powder in my urethra, and I pack it down with a pencil tip and a mallet. <laughs> Just kidding. I swallow it. Using a handheld mirror, I insert the knife into my mouth, wait until the entire knife is past my lip, flip it over, and dump the dust into my tongue and very carefully wipe the knife off on my tongue as well. It is the most tart thing I have ever tasted, no contest. I swish it around my mouth, only using my saliva, for I fear opening my mouth will cause some of the dust to escape. The physical dose is truly that small. For two minutes, I fistfight all of my taste buds and continue to produce as much saliva as I can, my glands being the unsung heroes. I swallow and repeat. After three cycles over six minutes, I am comfortably op I'm comfortable opening my mouth, which was good because I couldn't physically stand it any longer. I down a 12-ounce water bottle at the speed of light and swish my mouth yet again. The potent powder is so small that I have a legitimate concern some may have been lost to backwash. So I fill the bottle with a couple ounces of water from the sink, shake violently, and I drink it. I do this two more times, just to be safe. Like I'm disabling a bomb, I carefully pluck another tab of 150 micrograms of ALLAD with my trusty tweezers and place the sacrament on my tongue. I repeat this step with 100 micrograms of 1P LSD. Like Donnie and Jordan, I am sure my second dose will do the trick, for no one is immune to 300 micrograms of ALLAD, 200 micrograms of 1P LSD, and the equivalent of a quarter of shrooms in the form of 50 milligrams of 4-ACO DMT. 2 p.m. Excuse me, I need a sip of water. 2 p.m. I am now sure there is no God. Nothing is happening, not even nausea. My mind starts straying into shitty science territory again. Maybe caffeine will jack up my nervous system and cause the molecules to transfer faster. Maybe I need to eat glucose so my body actively uptakes the chemicals. Are more push-ups really that bad of an idea? No. Enough games. It's time to put on my big boy pants, tap into the pre-med knowledge seared into my mind from thousands of hours of studying physics and molecular biology and everything in between, reject half-assed hypotheses and silly pseudoscience, conjure up the scientist in me, and approach this like the academic I am. And by that, I mean let's fucking hurl the blow-up doll of caution into the hurricane winds of insanity and take the rest of the ALLAD and 1P LSD. I tear open the sealed layers, grab both strips with my tweezers, and then toss, toss an additional 450 micrograms of ALLAD and 300 micrograms of 1P LSD on my tongue without a blip of hesitation. Future me is watching this moment and can't help but see 
Jordan and Donnie, tossing back handfuls of lemon 715s, desperately trying to get high. This was my last-ditch Hail Mary attempt to land in the entheogen end zone. 2.55 p.m. It becomes quite apparent that the long bomb wasn't caught and no touchdown of truth would be celebrated today. Little did I know, the ball was still hanging in the air. Fuck it, fuck these timed intervals, I think. None of this shit works. I'm not waiting five more minutes to dose again. It doesn't matter if it's not exactly 3 p.m. because God knows there's no need to write a trip report for this. I retrieve the baggie of powder and use tiny grooming scissors to cut the top off. Using the mirror again, I hold the entire baggie over my tongue, flip it over, and use my pinky finger to push the bottom of the bag up to the top, turning the whole thing inside out, releasing 200 milligrams of 4-ACO-DMT in my mouth, the equivalent of 35 dried grams of cubensis mushrooms. The powder of death lands on my taste buds, and I'm on a mission. I gulp it all down. Then I wipe the exterior, formerly interior, of the bag all over my tongue, cleaning it out of any remaining residue. I do my water chugging, swishing, and clean the bottle routine again. I text my girlfriend that day that the day was a bust and that she and two of my friends should come over. Her friend is coming over, and I text one of them and tell them, tell them to bring the greenery, a male who we'll call Kerbal Space Program, because I was soon to be in orbit. Kerbal for short. 2.57 p.m. Turns out they were only about a mile down the road getting food and thus arrived in about two minutes. My girlfriend at the time, we'll call her Keenan, and her friend, we'll call her Emily, walked in talking to each other about something. They sit on a couch across the room from me. I see that they are in a conversation and their respective consciousnesses are engaged in each other, so I should talk to Kerbal. The fact that I was so hyper aware of their personal bubble is, in hindsight, pretty clear that something was happening. I could definitely feel that each consciousness was contained within, or radiated outwards, a personal bubble. I hate to be so hippie cliche, but they were bubbles of energy. You couldn't see them, but you could feel them. Like when you're upstairs, like when you're upstairs with the headphones on and you just know the garage door is opening, despite not hearing them. They were, are, there, and are as unique as your DNA and fingerprint. Yet, this raised no flags at the time. 2.58 p.m. Kerbal sits down on the couch next to me and smiles. So, bro. Bro. Smile. Close proximity to me on the couch, and I don't feel gay. Through memory, I could still experience a perfect reenactment of the feeling. Friendship. Camaraderie. Brotherhood. A bond stronger than any taught in organic chemistry. Older than the hills, and built on a foundation of platonic love second only to that shared between a mother and her newborn. The players come and go, but the game echoes through time. Nomadic men waking up before dawn, moving gracefully on the dew-soaked ground. Dirt caked between callous toes and under toenails. BCE brothers in the Middle East setting up their father's station for the daily merchant madness of the town bazaar. Medieval shitheads smacking each other's armors with swords, deciding whether to enter the church or the military, and keeping a keen eye on the potential wives of their community. Something something Native American Indians, something something samurai, something something in tune with nature. Young colonial fathers helping each other build their house, pass on Puritan morals, and unwittingly experience the birth of the greatest nation on earth. Brothers assessing their current homes and then making the insane, courageous, daring decision to get in a covered wagon for three months, somehow survive the trip, and then use shovels to hopefully find wealth in the form of shiny gold rocks that cannot be eaten, cannot warm a home, cannot cure an ailment, cannot bring security, cannot increase intelligence, and cannot improve health. What funny creatures we are. Raucous guys dropping out of high school together, seeing the entire fucking world at war with itself, and hurling themselves into the meat grinders of the European and Pacific theater of war in the 1940s. Two saggy, smelly priests, Eiffel-towering, innocent, wide-eyed Boy Scout, and the Holy of Holies in the Vatican. Kerbal and I, bravely doing drugs. A timeless connection of brotherhood that brings warm, laughter, warmth, laughter, fistfights, jealousy, support, and tough love. As if distilled into a single drop, all at once I could feel the spectrum of emotions experienced by gazillions of guys across multiple millennia. Like waking up from a nightmare and being so happy that your life isn't that hell you just dreamed. I become aware of, and incredibly grateful for, something as simple as a, as a smile from a friend. The woes of life faded away like the wisp of smoke perched on top of a candle, vanished with the flick of the light switch for a ceiling fan. It is important to note my sorrows and problems weren't being pushed downwards and drowned by the apathy-inducing warm waves of liquor, but artificially reduced to the problems a la stimulants. Rather, I found a well of joy by simply reconfiguring the pieces I had all along, like breathing life, excitement, and novelty into a bedroom by rearranging the very same furniture you owned. It is universally known that, the that variety is the spice of life. But Big Spice doesn't want you to know that mixing and matching your existing spice collection is more effective than buying new spice. They don't want you to know that your existing life, the very life you're living today, 
is already perfect, but the pieces are just simply jumbled. It's a life of such total happiness, fulfillment, and enlightenment that the life of any billionaire fantasy that one may have does not compare. It's simply configured the wrong way, like a Rubik's Cube, fuck dick spice, and spiritual lobbying. Herbal pulls out a tiny ball of cellophane-wrapped bud. Herbal's herbal goodies. Seemed really funny that he had this ball in his pocket. Just this little sphere of plant matter in a pouch and the material of article of clothing he uses to cover his lower lips. Seemed like a normal thought at the time, but reality was slowly warping. 2.59pm. Herbal tears the plastic and dumps the sticky, icky, stanky, organic matter on the glass table. He leans forward, putting his face right above it, and starts tediously picking apart the lump with his fingers, creating a tiny pile of shreds. It is clear his consciousness is now zeroed in on the flower. I see the growing pile of shredded leaves, and I glance at the ice-filled bong that will soon be used to combust, cool, filter, and deliver gaseous THC to our lungs. I giggle at this thought. Herbal glances up at me, smiles, and goes back to work, completely unaware of the looming storm in my mind. I chuckled a little more, trying to keep it to myself. The girls are in their own world and don't notice a thing. Herbal looks up and laughs while saying, What? And I respond, I don't know, man. <laughs> 3 p.m. on the nose. Forget about Will Ferrell on SNL. The preparation of weed is absolutely fucking hilarious. I realize something is up. Oh, man. Could it be? I look at my phone. It's only been five minutes since the massive 4 ACO DMT dump. Nah, it couldn't be. It couldn't be taking effect that fast. But, man, something is... Oh. It dawns on me. The 1,250 micrograms of LSD derivatives and 50 milligrams of synthetic psilocybin have been in my system for a long, for a long time. I've definitely found the culprit. Oh, shit. There's an additional 200 milligrams of 4-ACO-DMT that have yet come into play. Doing drugs, waiting, doing more drugs, and then being immediately hit by the first round of said drugs? This has happened to me before, but with different drugs, in different scenarios, and with different intentions. On a Friday night in Athens, Georgia, the usual pregame party of 10 good friends in a small apartment goes the usual route. The first game of beer pong begins with defined rules, effort shots, good defense, and partners cheering each other on. New batches of beer are being brought in by bros and being systematically placed into Barry the Bruce fridge with the geometric mastery of ancient Egyptian pyramidal architects and the space efficiency of drug smugglers. The girls go to the kitchen and mix their drinks, sipping and re-sipping altering the ratios of the sugary solvents and solid spirits, somehow always producing potent Trojan horses of inebriation. You ever notice that? Every single college-age girl apparently has a PhD in organic chemistry, the intuitive taste buds of an emperor's chef, and the ability to eyeball measurements comparable only to that of veteran carpenters? Shit's fucking bananas. Anyway, somebody, somebody volunteers to be the DJ. Emphasis on volunteer. For the night is young, most of the liquid courage remains in the brand name commercial vessels as opposed to the future debt slaves' blood vessels, thus facing sobriety and social vulnerability. It requires an act of bravery by a bro, nay, a party patriot, to throw on their throwdown playlist whilst under the legal limit. For it takes a strong soul to put an encapsulation of one's creativity on display and await potential praise or evisceration, for you and your playlist become Patrick Bateman and his business car. Kind of like how this story is an ambassador of my imagination, so is this podcast. Half an hour later, like a 747 lazily taxiing on the tarmac, the night has indeed started moving, but really hasn't gone anywhere yet. <clears throat> the bongers are hastily downing cans of beer in addition to their silos of fermented wheat, targeted by featherlight spheres, plopping down, then pluming up arcs of foam, like depth charges in a sea battle of sobriety. Conversations are slowly crawling out of their native circles, like early tribes initiating trade. But sentences are still finished with forced smiles and slurping sips, the former in order to create the illusion that the party is getting started, the latter to ensure that the party is getting started. Finally, an hour in and the raucous is released upon or by the youthful and beautiful. Pong partners now renew their relationships on a shot-by-shot -shot basis. An insane bucket brings praise and promises of camaraderie for life. A miss earns one the stink eye of a racehorse with a broken leg. Conversations no longer strictly occur between well-worn friends. If every individual is a sphere of ink, the alcohol has tossed a lot of them into the gears of a pumping piston engine submerged underwater, where they are vigorously taken up and then carelessly dispersed into the ether. Nostalgic songs boom through the speakers, embarrassment totally absent from the DJ and those who belt the lyrics. Fucking alas, someone calls for shots. I'm really bored writing this analogy, so let's finish it up. Take several shots, then when you get to the bar, you do three shots in under a minute and start to feel a warm and funny feeling immediately. 
only to realize the feeling you are having now is from the shots you took 20 minutes ago and the shots you took 20 seconds ago are still on their way. This was like that, except I was now getting gut-checked by psychedelics ingested hours and hours prior, mere minutes after taking a dose that on its own would be a fucking ride in half. In order to not render my regaling revelation into a reductionist research report, the confusing combinations of characters, both Latin and logarithmic, construing chemical compounds 1P-LSD, AL-LAD, and 4-ACO-DMT will be unscrambled and simplified into smoothened and soothing sounds. Alliteration. For real though, we're just going to call it acid and shrooms. We will also note that 250 microgram or milligrams of 4-ACO-DMT is roughly equal to the amount of psilocybin in 35 grams of cubensis mushrooms. A decent trip is 3.5 grams of cubes. Bill Hicks once said a heroic dose is 5 dry grams and that he watched aliens build the Great Pyramids on one such adventure. My personal most extreme voyage into intersolar space was 9 grams of dried mushrooms and about 400 micrograms of acid. Excuse me. At this point, I am now feeling the effects of 1,250 micrograms of acid and 7 grams of shrooms, about 50 milligrams of 4-ACO-DMT. There is an additional 28 grams on the way. There's a slight uneasiness as the cogs in my there is a slight uneasiness as the cogs in my noggin get a turn in an energy efficient light bulb LSD light bulb flickers on. Energy efficient because my brain can only produce so much power right now. I write a note to myself on my phone. You ingested you ingested roughly twelve fits of acid and an ounce of shrimps. Your name is Tommy. From past psychedelic experiences, I now know that it is indeed possible to unintentionally stray away from reality like an astronaut untethered from the space shuttle. Except now, we don't have a fucking, a fucking space shuttle program because the government scrapped it. Okay, I think. The conditions for a trip are ideal. I just overshot it a bit. But the set and setting are perfect. I know I can't die. I add that to my note. Friends are here. People I love. And after all, I come out of every trip with a lasting appreciation for life. This will be fine. All right. I wrote my note. I meditated. I ate healthy. I exercised. I turned the thermostat down. I'm in comfy clothes. My girlfriend's here. What else do I need to do? I look up from my phone and gaze off into the distance like one always does when thinking hard. But then it catches me. The optical, obfu the optical obfuscation by the molecular minions have begun. The tapestry behind the TV on the far wall. It's not swirling yet, but the color is just like it's there. It's like it truly exists. It speaks to me. It's a homemade piece done by a friend, and it's all right. But in this moment, it makes the Sistine Chapel look like a crayon drawing on a children's menu at a shitty seafood restaurant full of overweight moms and depressed dads and visors. That's not what I normally see. Well, I don't normally consume, consume enough shrooms for a Mike Tyson karaoke of a Beatles love week. I also don't normally have sublingual sex with a dozen diethylamide blotters. All right, all right. I'll go back to that joke. I don't normally consume enough shrooms for a Mike Tyson karaoke of a Beatles love week. See, the joke here is Mike Tyson has a lisp, and the Beatles proclaim that they ain't got nothing but love, babe, eight days a week. So Michael would presumably pronounce eight as eighth. See, if you smudge the math a little, I ingested enough shrooms to have taken an eighth a day for an entire week. Eight days a week. Actually, that equals 24.5 grams, which is only 70% of what I took, so it's not really applicable at all. But so fucking what? I lied for a laugh. Fuck you. I look back down at my phone. Loss of depth perception. When you place a hand over one eye and stare at the wall, you lose depth perception. If laying in bed on your side, you may slowly reach out your hand to touch the wall, only to be shocked when either you can't reach it or you bump into it far sooner than predicted. Well, you won't be shocked, but it's just kind of neat. If you're shocked by something like that, take a good hard look at your life and start incorporating some excitement, variety, and comfort zone departures into your life. Girls, go get that short haircut. Guys, try that new beard. Guys and girls, buy some psychedelics in addition to your new personal grooming exhibits and remove the societal stencils encasing and commanding your doings. Social constructs are shoes on the feet of the mind, jamming and chafing away, creating blisters of depression, disillusion, and directionlessness but no one entertains the ideas of new shoes. Just keep going. You'll get calluses from your new running shoes. Or, to put it another way, just keep going. Don't worry about the blisters from your slowly closing crash-compacted cubicle life, your screaming spawn, and the rhythmic traffic jams sledging onwards to the pulse of a wheezing urban heart. 
You'll soon grow calluses from half-conscious dribbling media consumption, flash-heated factory food, and being comfortably numbed by boozy bottles of any product from big alcohol. Acceptance, apathy, and anesthesia. Always. Trademark. I'll watch my footing as I step down from my soapbox. Feel free, to, feel free to grab a beverage at the bar, put carbs in my jar, and inquire as to why I'm at these coordinates. A.K.A. I'll stop being so edgy. Actually, there's a better test you can try. Go to a windowless room, turn the lights off, completely cover one eye with one hand, and stare at your phone, at your phone screen for a minute or so. You'll lose complete depth perception. The white background of your text messages may seem to be 50 feet below the characters themselves, or it might all seem to be a lot closer to you. Either way, it's an odd, odd sensation. It's almost like seeing constellations from a different angle. Actually, it's much like our constellations. Always unaware that the stars composing the seemingly 2D images are actually fusion furnaces haphazardly scattered through an XYZ plane by the four physical forces of the universe, but we just happen to see an image. Think of how a stage director sees a performance. More rows of curtains than levels of security at the White House. Actors finish their line, sprint off stage, and drop their clothes quicker than Subway dropped Jared Fogle, but not as quickly as Nora dropped Flight 93. As they run off stage, they pass the baton to other characters standing just behind the curtain, poised like Usain Bolt, ready to leap into the mind's eye of the audience. The actors who just left off stage now drop their con costumes and associated lines only to adorn new ones, appearing to have conscious control over split personality disorder. Like a formless mind with a neutral soul scrolling through, scrolling through the motorized tie rack of different personalities at the divine dry cleaners off the last exit before the birth canal. <clears throat> Point being, a director sees a play from the messy behind-the-scenes standpoint, or as Lennon's jewelry-rattling ticket holders see a perfect picture of prancing peasants. Well, excuse me. I looked at my phone with two eyes and perfectly lit room and experienced complete loss of depth perception of the layers of the screen. In order, the layers were the screen glare, the smudges on the screen, the keyboard, the text characters, and a white background. We normally see these as just one surface, all layers flushed with one another. But these layers were no longer royally flushed, as if letting me know the layers of my soul were going to be royally thought. It was odd enough that tilting my phone revealed to me that my 2D screen was an illusion, a mirage in the desert of a psychedelic trip, rational thought as scarce as water, but this party was just getting started. The inflation of our universe incurs in such a way that space time itself stretches, but the galaxies themselves don't change in size. The famous analogy being that raisins of raisins and rising bread. They move farther apart as the bread expands, but the raisins stay the same size. In an identical manner, the layers of my phone, the glare, smudge, keyboard, icons, and background, didn't change dimensions, but the perceived vertical space between them was now measured in multiple miles, the number of which were exponentially increasing with every passing second or whatever unit of time was taking by. As my screen continued to undergo accordionification, telescoping inwards at an accelerating rate to unknown depths, it resembled an infini infinity mirror, all for but a second before evolving to its final form as it opened up into a full-blown wormhole. It was, at, it was at this time I realized that the paper, the wallpaper of my phone was located somewhere in the pinwheel galaxy. Would my wallpaper choices of motivational cues and peaceful imagery be blasted upon the sky of some primitive civilization? Would reminders like, print off your boarding pass, give hope to alien armies, like the flaming crucifix that appeared in the sky before the Battle of Lepanto between the Papal Navy and the Turks on September 20th, 1571? Is the smiling face of my angel girlfriend revered as God in a distant land? Are we just the background of some entity's phone? Is the land beneath our feet actually app icons? When the divine appendage of some deity rests on an icon, makes it shake, and moves its position, do we experience that as an earthquake or continental drift? Is Atlantis a deleted icon? Holy fuck. I think, if the first 15 minutes of this trip are already this powerful, what am I in for? Jesus, help me. Wait, didn't Jesus die at 3.15pm? Fuck. I felt that 15 minutes had passed. Passed. Time. Time passes. I know this. I usually experience this as, I have work tomorrow. I talked to her this morning. I still can't believe we did that in sixth grade. It's simply a part of life. Indistinguishable from fatigue, hunger, boxer beefs a bit too tight, or picking up a quadriplegic transvestite hooker in the dead of night. They are separate thermonuclear fusion furnaces. And that is how time was passing. Each second, a bursting ball of fire.
my page. It was not 3.15 p.m. It was 3.03 p.m. Timestamps from this point onward are loose guesstimation, anchored to factuality only by the occasional glances at timekeeping devices. The reason why those two minutes felt like 15 minutes is because clearly I had fell into highway hypnosis on the psychedelic road trip and this was oblivious to the fact that I was somewhere around Barstow. At this point, there was not a single neuron at the brain cell town hall meeting in my noggin that could raise its dendritic hand and protest to the group affirmation that the trip was now underway. The tie-dye tapestry hinted that it had begun. The confirmation came when I looked at my cell phone and proclaimed, My God, it's full of stars, as it had turned into a wormhole. In hindsight, I could tell the first few molecules of acid were tickling my neocortex when I was observing the spheres of consciousness surrounding my friends that indeed were my friends. As Captain Kerbal flopped his pooper on the couch cushion next to me and flipped, to, flipped me a warm smile like an aunt calling your name tosses a present on Christmas morning, it is now clear that the number of seconds I spent focused on the gregarious gift-giving directly paralleled the millions of molecules binding to untold numbers of receptors throughout my skull tissue. Silently and stealthy, molecular seals fired a silent 772 round of Lucy at yet another chunk of brain cells, drove a blade into the neck of another, and glove-gripped hands snapped the neck of a third with swift sincerity, culminating in my observation of the Renaissance painting on the wall that I for years had mistaken as a tapestry. Alas, my dive into the intergalactic tube of my eye-wormhole iPhone was brought on by even more diethylamide destroyers crawling up my carotid arteries, sneaking past my blood-brain barrier like a shadow in the wind, and snuffing out normal brain activity like an assassin's hand, cupping candles in a king's castle to be killed. But now, now my brain was a little, a little picturesque countryside town in World War II Europe. Kids were playing by a stream. Doughy aroma infused the air around a bakery. Horses pulled wagons of grain and firewood up dirt roads, all interrupted by black specks falling from the sky. Falling is the wrong word. Mark. It hijacks my heart, head, and soul. You know what I'm talking about. The energy you feel as you run and jump into the pool on the first day of summer, hanging in midair, about to explode with joy because your crush just texted you back. Energy from awesome thumping of summer night thunder. Whack-a-mole lightning firecrackers crackling clouds like 1920s flashbulbs. That energy coursing through crowds, goosebumps infecting your epidermis viciously and efficiently like a CDC nightmare. Every hair standing to attention like 10,000 saluting soldiers in Pyongyang, North Korea with Katy Perry choreography and Olympic diving synchronization. That goosebump energy when underdogs come back. No-name players in oversized jerseys and undersized contracts making miraculous catch after catch. Three-pointers drained from another area code. Extra inning moonshots. A 48-yard field goal over defenders when it looks like a renaissance mural. The victor screaming to the sky like gladiators thanking Jupiter. Energy so raw and impressive it comes from March Madness courts through television and physically lifts fans off their feet from hundreds of miles away. That energy from real life experiences you can't rewind or pause or capture so all you can do is watch it unfold, surrender to the madness, become the pulse, melt into a concert crowd of thousands of dancing, jumping, fucking, loving, screaming, singing bodies. Speakers and subwoofers the size of shipping containers erupting with shockwaves shaking you down to your bone marrow, not caring that your camera is dead, your phone is out of memory, or you're too high to remember this moment because you're here now a conduit for sex and love and fuck tomorrow attitude that I love so much about my generation. Suck it and fuck it, you old crusty boomers. Your meat machine rippling with energy so intense you actually feel pleasure from yelling, from pushing hard in your chest, eyes closed, arms flexed inside, letting the whole universe know that you're fucking alive. I look, no, I gaze wondrously. Time skips, hours vanish in a second. I don't know where several hours went, all the drugs hit at once, but I do know this, I found myself in my room. I do not know what time it is. Everyone else is asleep, and the universe is taking me to its very core. Obviously, this was enjoyable and beautiful, but at this time, while this was happening, I remember just being fucking stunned as to why I was, why I am, why am I consciousness? So there I was, who knows, maybe that's where I still am, just feeling reality around me, and then, for whatever reason, I just wasn't satisfied. Keep pushing, go further, let go, just let go, it will be okay. Just go, just go, just go, were the thoughts rushing through my being. I let go. I could feel myself wander into uncharted territories, modes of consciousness I hadn't ever experienced or dreamed before. It was a single point of being, just further. It was understanding, but higher. I was going linearly. No, I wasn't. I was going exponentially. Everything was new. 
Nothing was predictable. I could not imagine what was next. Then the next would come, and I couldn't imagine what would come after that. Here I was, going further, farther, deeper into a state. I need to keep going. I need to keep going. Silence. I sit in wondrous exaltation at the inner deity of truth, sitting like a pool of liquid silk at the center of the most inner cavern of the eternal self. It's like pushing back branches out of the way, leaves in your face, dirt at your feet, talking to somebody, and then all of a sudden you go silent as you push the last branch out of the way, and you see yourself looking down a ten-mile drop, forest and rivers as far as you can see, the moon setting, and shooting stars streaking across the sky. It's like getting pushed out of a plane while you were napping. I jumped into the ocean of consciousness. I was a newborn, yet an elder. A plane of reality around me indescribable to, well, to me. I was there, in a state of utter bliss and tranquility, induced by no more than my own thought process. End of Lunch with LSD. I turned my head, but my body didn't move. It was just like a dream. My eyelids were fluttering wildly, but, wildly, but I wasn't experiencing them or controlling them. Something very, very strange was happening. It was almost like spinning a top and then backing away from it. I merely receded further and no longer had to actively think about closing my eyes. I just walked away from my eyes, walked inward. It just happened. My eyes were fluttering wildly, but it's like my meditation secretary gave me a hand and said, hey, I'll keep your eyes closed. You just walk inwards. Absolute and utter bliss. Understanding of all emotion. Like Dr. Manhattan. I actually began to see time as an illusion. I am here but I'm also in the van on my way to kindergarten. I'm here, but I'm also sitting with my fiance on a Christmas Eve. I'm here, I am nervously walking into my first college party. I'm here, but I'm also gray-haired and contemplatively, contemplatively watching yet another good friend be lowered back into Mother Earth. I'm here, but I'm also a caveman 10,000 years ago hunting with crude tools, lighting flickering through my senses at the slightest twig breaking. I am here, but I am also a passenger of a generation ship apathetically drifting towards the Andromeda galaxy. I am here. I am a gorilla ten million years ago, lying on the soft jungle floor, protecting my kin, banded together with other males, protecting females, but confusedly strive to understand what the points of light in the night sky are. Further onwards I travel, while ironically my mind expanding ever outwards. I am. I am me. I exist. I am. There is. It is. Is. I morphed into my surroundings. I could actually feel my nerves connecting to the atmosphere in my room, to the walls, to the apartment, to the earth. Foom. I was bodiless. I literally vaporized into thin air, or so I believed. Too bad my eyes were closed, as I'm sure this could have actually happened. I merged with the one. I became all that is, and it became me. Time and space collapsed into an abstract memory. I was smaller than a cork, but larger than the 93 billion light year across the universe. I no longer existed. There was simply experience, no ego contemplating the experience. I was the tree falling alone in the forest with no one around to hear it. I was the Tao, the great stream of experience. My, my physical being evaporated like a wisp of smoke. I couldn't feel limbs or bed or sound or sight or taste or smell. I left that all behind. There was, there is, no time. All is now. There never was a past, and there never will be a future. Space was revealed to be a construct of our imagination. The only thing that is, is existence, and that's what God is. God is not an entity. God is the fabric of structure, of, the fabric and structure of existence itself. Therefore, we are all God. Everything is God, and God is all. Thus, there can be no death, for there was no birth. We're all cut from the same cloth, but there was never any cut in the first place. That's the illusion of ego and identity, thinking there is a me that lives in a universe of other. No, existence is all one blanket, and you are a circle somehow somehow drawn onto, drawn with a pen on the blanket. It's just a fucking illusion. You're the blanket temporarily experiencing the circle. You came from the blanket, and you always go back to the blanket. No birth, no death. The blanket has always existed. The Big Bang, a universe is just a circle on a bigger blanket. It never ends and never began. Every action of the universe is perfect in its unfolding, and not a grain of dust is out of place. It's a beautiful play, and life is front row tickets. As Bill Hicks said, don't be afraid, don't worry, ever, because it's just a ride. The purpose of us temporarily inhabiting these bodies is to force us to act. Recess in grammar school wasn't infinite, it was finite. 
Therefore, we never fucked around. We got right down to playing dodgeball because recess was too short to waste time. Well, replace recess with life, and that's why we're here. If we had unlimited time, we'd worry and procrastinate until the end of time. Biological mortality, cancer, aneurysms, plane crash, old age, are whistles at the end of recess. But unlike recess, it's more like musical chairs, as we have no idea when that whistle is going to blow. So you have to act now. Don't wait till you're retired. You gotta jump off the plane now. Fuck worrying if the parachute opens or not. Just jump. For tomorrow an asteroid hits the, the Earth anyway. Lastly, what is this blanket of space? This blanket of time? This blanket of matter? This blanket of experience and blanket of consciousness? It's love and nothing else. If you boil down any experience or action in anyone's life throughout all of human history, at its most distilled form, like quarks and electrons, is the choice between fear and love. Fear? Lifelong experience of shit, and when you die, you wake up, you facepalm because you wasted it. No worries, dive back in, be reincarnated. Love? Enjoy the one now, waking up and laughing at how great it was. Dive back in, reincarnate into another consciousness. There's no true purpose to anything. Not getting into heaven, not avoiding hell. Not creating AI, or creating a utopia, or reaching the technological singularity, because the universe just eventually collapses and starts again. There is no end. You can't make it. You can't lose. No one arrives. No one's left behind. The only purpose to anything and everything, it's two. First is simply to love. Two is to live in the now. And that's Nirvana. As Buddha said, Nirvana isn't some grandiose, I don't think this is a Buddha quote, but whatever, I'm going to stick with it. As Buddha said, Nirvana isn't some grandiose heavenly thing. It's just a hearty belly laugh. You laugh at how you were, at how silly it is that you were ever scared, sad, or angry, because you now realize you are, you always have been, you always will be, in a state of nirvana. That is, life itself is one long state of nirvana. It's just a matter of realizing it, delighting in it, and trying to spread it with as many people as you can throughout your life. The universe has an amazing sense of humor. Life is the ultimate prank, pulled off by the ultimate loving cosmic comedian. C-L-Y-F, Cliff. Choose love, you fucks.